the day that we have feared would come at some point, and it has. As you know, we've declared this as a terrorist incident. Sadly, I can confirm that now four people have died. That includes the police officer who was protecting Parliament, and one man, we believe to be the attacker, who was shot by a police firearms officer. We are not afraid, and our resolve will never waver in the face of terrorism. And we meet here in the oldest of all parliaments, because we know that democracy and the values it entails will always prevail. This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt, and for this week's show, we visited Westminster, where the memorial flowers were still fresh, for a special recording from the House of Lords with Baroness Saida Varsi, who talked about her new book, The Enemy Within. When I wrote the book, one of the things I used to talk about all the time was I just hope that it's not a terrorist attack in the middle of all of this, not just because it could lead to the loss of lives, but also because I think these conversations are so much harder to have when people are much more emotional. And certainly after an attack like we saw in Westminster, emotions were high. But it's it's just fate. I mean, I remember doing an interview in the morning of the uh, terrorist attack. And actually, the last words I said to the interviewer as she left was, I just hope it isn't a terrorist attack. I mean, it it, it just seems... um, it just seems so tragically timely um, for the book. But I, but I also think that now, you know, a week or so on, it's, it's important for us to have these tough conversations about the place of Muslims in Britain and how we perceive them and how they see themselves. Saida Varsi was halfway through the serialisation of her book when the attacks happened. We met her at her office at the House of Lords where she reflected on growing up as a Muslim in a Labour Bradford heartland, only to go on to lead in the Conservative Party, sit in government and disagree with Prime Minister David Cameron. I asked what leaders in both the community and at a national level can do to challenge prejudice and terrorism. But with the attack so fresh, I started by asking her to outline the meaning behind her provocative title, The Enemy Within. There was a reason for, first of all, calling the book that. Uh, When I was in government, I was called the enemy at the table, and I felt that quite a deeply insulting phrase to use for me. As, As the granddaughter of two men who had served in the British Indian Army, as somebody who herself was serving her government at the highest table, it did hurt. And I think one of the best ways of dealing with insults that hurt is to feel them well, and this book is my way of fielding that insult. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I feel like you've decided to own that phrase to take control of it. And we we see similar things with, you know, young black men using the N word, which I'm very uncomfortable saying. And there was also the the son a few years ago, back in the 80s, referred to gay people as perverts. So mm. they started raising money for minors and called it pits and perverts, which is quite entertaining. Mm. Why do you feel the need to to take ownership of that phrase? I think a a community that's growing more confident, somebody who becomes a community that becomes more sure-footed and uh, is much more likely to take on its whole identity, insults and all. And I remember as a child where the term of insult was, again, not a great word, not a nice word, but it was Paki. And I remember in the 80s, many of us from Pakistani backgrounds went out and bought t-shirts which said pack one on them which was a bit like owning the n-word owning these words and I just felt here again we were now in 2013 and because I was Muslim in public life this was a term that somebody felt they could use towards me and I therefore felt well I'll own it. 
your background, I mean, how you got to where you are, it's, you were raised in Dewsbury. It's not a traditional Tory upbringing. What brought you to the Conservatives? Well, I grew up in a very strong working class home. It was a Labour uh, voting family. My dad had been a mill worker. He'd joined the, the trade union movement. He'd and therefore we voted Labour, although mum voted Margaret Thatcher in the years when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, simply because I think she saw her as this incredibly strong woman. She 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 had a huge amount of admiration for her. I'm not convinced she always understood the policies, but I think that's certainly where, um, where her politics lied at, at that stage. And, and also she was, I think as, as time went on, she... Um, when I started looking at conservative policies, I, I realised that the way in which we were living our lives, the kind of uh, concept that if you worked hard and you were aspirational and you took advantage of the opportunities that presented, um, that you wanted to live your life free of state control, these were very much conservative ideals. I mean, Dad eventually went on to set up his own business, the concept of the free market uh, economy. This, these were very much ingrained into our upbringing, but yet we still felt that we were Labour. And it was only in my 20s that I, I when I realised where my uh, politics lie, I realised they were definitely in the centre-right. I, I mean, you talked there about your dad and he ran his own business, he was an entrepreneur. How did that influence you when you were getting into politics? Well, I, um, like I said, I grew up in a very strong working class home and I remember those tough days, but I also remember how taking advantage of an opportunity, setting up, uh, my dad setting up his own business and working his way out of poverty, how that changed all our lives. Uh, and I think it fundamentally made me a conservative because I felt that business was a way in which you didn't just improve your own lot, but you created jobs for others as well. I mean, it must be really hard to strike that balance. Not, you know, you are in Westminster and yet at the same time you're writing about this issue. Did you feel you had to kind of pull back on what you were saying? Were there any parts of the book that you regretted? Uh, no, not at all. I think I was in quite a uniquely privileged position. I sat at the heart of British Muslim communities at the same time as sitting at the heart of the establishment at the cabinet table. And therefore, I was not only making policy, but actually sitting in the community that this policy was impacting upon. Uh, and therefore, uniquely, I felt that I had an insight where I could talk about them and us. Um, and, and also show that actually there isn't this easy divide between them and us. You know, I am them and I am us. So how do you even start to how do you even start to divide out those identities? It should be obvious to us this stuff, but you point out that the Muslim community is not just one big homogenous thing. It's you know, there's people who wear headscarves, there's women who don't wear headscarves, there's people who listen to a certain type of music, there's people who listen to a different kind of music. It is pretty much the whole of society. Um how do you bring that community together? How do you make them all see the same way? Well, do any of us see things in the same way? Uh, I, what I was trying to do in the book was really outline the diversity of British Muslim communities, you know, from they are black, they're white, they're Persian, they're Asian, they're bog standard Anglo-Saxon, you know, they do so many different jobs, they believe in so many different things, they dress in so many different ways, they listen to music. And and, I, and that's the point that I was making. And, and I was saying that you cannot define this community by the actions of a few. I mean, if you look at the thousands and thousands of British Muslim doctors that we have, people who we will, we will meet on a, on, you know, on a weekly basis, either through our GP or at the hospital, or some connection connection through our families and yet we don't define British Muslims as the daily lifesavers that they are in the NHS and and elsewhere we choose to define them through the handful of 
ad hoc life takers. And that's the point that I was trying to make that, you know, they do not all think we do not all think in one way. Just like you couldn't say, you know, all people from London think in a certain way or people from Yorkshire think in a certain way or all Christians or white people or English people think in a certain way. I mean, we are all so different. So I think that was the point of this book in, you know, in a slightly kind of flippant, eye rolly Yorkshire way, saying <laughs> there's a diversity within this community. So how do you, maybe we turn it on its head, maybe you persuade the rest of society to, to see it that way. How do you persuade, you know, the whole of Britain to just stop seeing one community as one homogenous being i think it's whether or not we see we choose to see them in that way um and that's why the back you know the the chapters seven eight and nine are all about how we do things differently and in that some of the suggestions that i make are really kind of practical even flippant you know go see a muslim comedian comedy is a great level it's a fantastic place where you people discuss the things that are normally considered sensitive and off bounds if you have a muslim friend ask them that really tough question you know i ask people to take the quran experiment which is uh, an experiment which was um, initially done by two pranksters from the netherlands who used a copy of the bible covered it in the sleeve of the sleeve of the quran and then read extracts from it around say women or um, uh, homosexuality and people will be in the street saying oh well yes yes of course this religion has no place in Europe and it's uniquely misogynistic or uniquely homophobic and then they take the sleeve off and they say well actually it's the bible That's and brilliant. and I think it's the, and what I'm saying to people is some, you know some, just do these really practical things to challenge your own stereotypes we are all bigoted in some way I am you are we have our stereotypes we have our you know we have our prejudices and we need to be challenged and I hope what this book does amongst other things is challenge people to think differently but then act upon it by saying okay well I'm gonna go out and learn a little bit more hey Emma here and in this reflective episode I wanted to share with you how much both City AM and me love podcasts we're on a mission with Audio Boom to get everyone to embrace the podcast it's because podcasts are ace for storytelling and as London and indeed the world reflect back on terror attacks, it's the human stories that make us see the light in what's otherwise a very dark memory. So this week's call to action is simple. Tell your friends about podcasts. In fact, tell them a story you heard in one. Because podcasts. Yeah. So confession time. I'm a middle class white girl. I grew up in Bath. And for me, Saida's book was really difficult to read. And when I was interviewing her, I tried to be as honest as I could about that. What did you find most challenging? It's, that's a really tough question to answer in itself. Um, I just, you know, I think he, he, you have you make assumptions, as you say, we're all bigoted. I, you know, we're bigoted women. Hearing stuff from a certain viewpoint that you kind of, especially as someone who is part of the metropolitan liberal elite, you know, I consider myself as, as being informed. very liberal. Yeah, very informed and I understand everyone's plight. Um, but so hearing, start, hearing experiences that I am not familiar with, mm. I found quite challenging and the viewpoints that come out of that as well. It dawned on me just how difficult it actually was to have this conversation, which I thought I already knew, but perhaps I only just started to feel the real weight of it. The first time the British public saw Michael Adebalajo was in the shocking pictures from Woolwich the day he killed Lee. This was his justification then, words he agreed with as he gave evidence for the first time. The only reason we have killed this man today is because 
Muslims are dying daily by British soldiers. And this British soldier is one, is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The section that really hit me this morning was reading the stuff about the guys who beheaded Lee Rigby versus the 82-year-old granddad that was murdered in the street in plain sight mm. um, and the two media reactions because as a member of the media I always think that I you know I'm very balanced in the way I and most of us don't even remember Mohammed Salim no I didn't frankly I kind of had a vague memory flowers now lie where Mohammed Salim collapsed an 82 year old grandfather stabbed in the back as he returned home from prayers police began the search for a white man glimpsed on CCTV running from the scene in predominantly Muslim small heath there's deep unease as well as this killing, there's a perception that since the murder of Fusilier Lee Rigby in Woolwich, anti-Islamic sentiment is on the rise. Twenty-two-year-old man. And I spent a lot of time talking to Mohammed Salim's daughter, Maz, and she, you know, her, uh, the family, uh, I mean, Maz and the family haven't even got closure on it yet because they just feel the whole way in which was it was handled. In fact, they were seen as suspect. The family were originally questioned about it and they just lost their father and their grandfather. But you don't think that's going to happen in Britain, do you, in no. 2017? And yet this guy, you know, deliberately came out to kill a Muslim. Yeah. The guy who murdered Joe Cox, everybody went, oh, well, you know, he was mentally challenged. Yeah. He, he had mental health problems. No, it's terror. It's plain terror. Just so we're clear, my producer Jamie told me that finding newsreel of Lee Rigby's murder was incredibly easy. In fact, if you Google his name today, I'm confident that the most recent articles citing his murder won't be that old. They certainly aren't in the week that we were putting this episode out. But Mohammed Salim's stabbing was tucked away with just a handful of reports. Your view of David Cameron in the book is very interesting because obviously, you know, you became Conservative leader while he was in office. Where did he go wrong? I think the relationship that I have with David is twofold. There's a personal relationship on what I think of him and I think he's he's a really great guy to work with. He's really good fun. He's, you know, he was he gave me a huge amount of opportunities to, to have the political career that I had and I make that clear in the book. But where I think he went wrong was if you look at his speeches from kind of 2006, seven, and then you look at his speeches from 2015, 16, they're, they're in a completely different space on this agenda. He changed and he became much more right wing, much more, uh, I think, neoconservative in his approach, much more authoritarian in his in his policymaking. Um, and a lot of his policymaking wasn't based on evidence or experts. You know, we have our intelligence service, services saying to us there are so many different telltale signs of why somebody would become a terrorist. And yet, in government, we focus on one. I mean, some people would argue that it was a, a reasonable response to the terror threat at the time. Uh, to be fair, when he was making speeches in 2005, 6, 7, we just had 7, 7. And that was a far more serious terrorist that we lost far more people. And these were young men who were born and raised in Britain and in fact one of them was from Dewsbury where I was born and raised and and yet the uh, the, and the attack on Lee Rigby I mean it's no less serious because we lost a life but it was a life that we lost as opposed to the so many that we lost at 7-7 so we were facing the same threat in in 2013-14 um, as serious a threat as we were uh, around um, post 7-7 and yet his speeches post-77 were in a completely different space to where they were subsequently. 
I mean, there was this stuff going on in France. There was people in churches in Germany getting murdered. So the, the threat might not have been at home, but it, it was severe. And I remember the terror threat level was raised. Mm. Was he not just responding to that? Well, you don't just you don't just act on a whim. You have to act on evidence. And for me, I kept saying, let's go back to what the evidence says. What are what are experts saying to us? Are the telltale signs for somebody becoming a terrorist? What evidence is there to say that somebody could have, say, conservative religious practices and then move down a, a, a linear journey towards becoming a terrorist? There isn't evidence to show that. And that theory has been discredited. Um, prevent, for example, was part of our counterterrorism strategy. It was a, an element, a part of the strategy, which was about uh, working with communities, trying to prevent people from becoming terrorists and working upstream. It was something that should be done with communities. It ended up being a policy that we did to communities. It was a securitization rather than safeguarding. And these were all the challenges in policymaking. And and I and I continued to make the case to say, let's go back to what the evidence says. Let's not wake up an ideological. You know, these issues are far too serious to be dealt with on the basis of the ideological opinions and whims of individual politicians. Well, what were the conversations that you were having with him behind the scenes like at the time? Were you finding yourself having to argue with him more? Well, it, politics is the art of trying to convince others. So you have to find a kind of fine line between, you know, feeling incredibly passionate and angry about certain issues, especially when they're as personal as this issue was for me. Uh, but at the same time, trying to be collaborative and work as part of a team to try and convince others to have the same view as yours. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk about Brexit because it seems appropriate when you're talking about David Cameron. And that's the really interesting thing about you is that you moved from leave to remain. What prompted that decision? And are you still glad that you made that decision? Yes, I am. Uh, and uh, But I also firmly believe that the country voted to leave and we have to now get, get on with it and make it work. I, I genuinely believe that Britain outside the European Union can make its way in the world. Um, I, I had huge concerns about the European project in recent years, the bureaucracy and the corruption and the lack of the opaqueness around finance and funding um, and the amount of money that's waste and, and, and how it's still not a free market uh, concerned me. And so I felt there was much that was wrong with the European Union and much that needed to be put right. Um, and I felt that a, pl a space for us outside the European Union could be somewhere where we could we could have our future. What can, and, I, and I always define people like me as hello world Brexiteers, people who wanted to be bigger than just our relationship with Europe. What I realized actually very quickly was that many people who were fighting this campaign and indeed the message that won it for the uh, referendum was uh, a message of Little Island Brexit. Let's, you know, draw down the hatches, but, you know, but let's let's push everybody out. Let's make sure that we're a little island nation on our own. Uh, let's get rid of people. Let's not have immigration. I mean, even pe people were even saying it's about the Muslims. Let's It's about telling them to go away. I don't want their, their type here anymore. So for me, and, and, and those that were running the, the Leave ca uh, campaign knew that that message was working and they doubled down on it. And that's what concerned me, because if you run a toxic, divisive message, then the outcome of that can't be good. Do you want to name names at this point? Well, I think it was obvious. I mean, it was predominantly led by people like um, uh, Nigel Farage in UKIP, but supported by people like Michael Gove and others in, in my own party. Um, and you have to start worrying. When you look at a campaign and you think this is being supported by people like Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, Gert Wilders, UKIP, 
And like I said at the time, you look at these people and they're all on the same bus and you think they're not the kind of people I would get on a night bus with. Why do I find myself in the same campaign space as them? So despite the fact that I still believe and I always believe that we we could chart our own path outside of the European Union, I fundamentally don't believe that the means justifies the ends when you run campaigns like that. I mean, it has quite a similar narrative to to what we're talking about with with the enemy within, which is us and them. You know, the, the people on the Remain side see the Leave voters as them. Do you think the message from the book is, you know, ha- you have a message for both sides of the Brexit campaigns as well? I do. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that the Brexit campaign did was that it did green light a lot of bigotry. And we saw that in the rise of hate crimes that we saw on our streets subsequently. And... You know, when we look at the kind of campaign that we saw Donald Trump run, when we look at the kind of campaigns that we've seen in the Netherlands and in France and and, and in Austria, we should be deeply worried. There isn't this genuine rise of populism, this kind of far right kind of messaging which has crept into centre right politics. Um, and I, in the book, I say, you know, this is the fog of fascism, which is coming in from East and West. And we in Britain have to continue to to, to determine who we are going to be. Um, and that's why I call for a national debate about what are British ideals? What is the nation that Britain in 2017 wants to be? And how do we ensure that we carry on making the case for progressive liberal values? The thing about British values, though, is, you know, you've got people like Theresa May saying, oh, people, if they want to come to this country and study in this country, they should be tested on their British values first. How do you define what these are? Well, I I, didn't, I devote a whole chapter to the concept of British values. And I basically say that it's... Um, it's it's a, it's a list which isn't historically correct. Um, it doesn't ring true in much of our policy making, and therefore what the term that I talk about is British ideals. Uh, there's no point saying, look, this is who we are, and this is who we've always been, because history shows that we clearly have not and are not. Even now, we talk about you know great British values of equality, and yet. You know, we still are quite happy to engage and do trade with nations who have no respect or equal rights for women in their societies. And so, therefore, I think it, it's better for us to not use the term British values, but use the term British ideals, which is a forward-looking, progressive uh, uh, phrase. And it's also inclusive. It means that we can all shape what those ideals should be. And just out of interest, what colour should our passports be after Brexit? I'm not really bothered. <sighs> You know, I, if if that's the biggest thing that should be worrying us right now, what I want to what I want to ensure is that we remain a nation which is connected to the world, including Europe. That we remain a nation which is tolerant, even of people who we don't agree with. That we remain a nation who believes in the equal worth and value of women and of LGBT communities and minorities. And you know, the color of the passport is really so far down this. <laughs> Do you worry that Leave's triumph has exacerbated Islamophobia in the UK? Well, Islamophobia is a really naff term to describe bad behaviour. I mean, I use this, to, I say that, I mean, it's a it's a shortcut because we try and explain what it is. It's usually, I mean, what, what we're talking about is anti-Muslim hatred and anti-Muslim okay. sentiment. And I just feel that, unfortunately, not just the Leave campaign, but before that, if you look at the mayoral campaign that, unfortunately, that my party ran, if you look at the general election campaign in 2015, where you talked about Muslim communities as being fifth columnists this is a kind of a drip drip thing that's been happening for a number of years now um, and left and checked we end up in the same place that Donald Trump has ended up in where he's quite openly anti-Muslim in the way he operates um, so I think yes we all have a responsibility to say that you know they might not be coming for me right now but they're coming for a community um, and we have to stop that because 
you know, as history shows, they may come for them now, but they'll come for us eventually. So from a leadership point of view, presumably your view is that it's up to those in charge, those at the top of all the parties, not just those running the country, to ensure the way they talk is not going to exacerbate these problems. Yes, they have they have two responsibilities. First of all, politicians have a responsibility not to use language which which stirs up hatred. Um, and secondly, we have a responsibility to send out a very clear message that everybody in this country has has equal worth and equal value, that everybody in this country will be protected. The media have a responsibility in the way that they uh, talk about issues. You know, we, we talk about this young man who was, you know, killed, smacked to within an inch of his life in Croydon. Every single day we see certain newspapers running front pages about refugees, about the other, about how these refugees can't be trusted, how they're, you know, every, I mean, every kind of vilification that we can about these communities. And then we wonder why certain people think that gives them the green light to start kicking somebody's head in as they did in Croydon. So I think we all need to take a look at ourselves and say, what do I do to play, to feed this beast of division? And what can I do to try and create a sense of ease? Okay, well, Saeed Avasi, thank you so much. Thank you. With thanks to our guest, Saeed Avasi, for hosting us at the House of Lords and, of course, our podcast producer, Jamie Wareham, this has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. Hang about for this week's Twitter conversation, but also subscribe in all the usual places. You know them. It's iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher or RSS. And remember, email advertising at audioboom.com. Our audience is millennial, ABC One and incredibly engaged. And keep loving podcasts. Tweet me at Emma Hazlitt, that's two T's, with your opinion on this week's episode. We tried some new storytelling and format tweaks and we'd love to know if you enjoyed the show. See you next week. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.